1: Welcome to the Mortification of SPIN, a regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird and uh, Todd Pruitt. We have a special guest on the program today, the Reverend Terry Johnson of Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Terry, according to his bio on the webpage, uh, was born and raised in L.A. from a Baptist background, played baseball, studied at Trinity College Bristol, which is about 40 miles from where I grew up, so it's an exceptionally good quality (laughs) part of England, I have to say, and also at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, and is ordained as a minister in the PCA. There you go. Terry, great to have you with us today.
2: Thank you. Honored to be a part of this.
1: Well, what we want to talk to you today about, Terry, is worship. It's been something of a theme uh, in, in your life and in your writings. At Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, where I pastor, we give away your little book on leading in worship to all of the students that we have who lead worship for us on occasion. Why worship, Terry? What is it that attracted you to this topic? Why do you consider it to be so important?
2: Well, I think it was a result of becoming Reformed in my theology, actually. I was brought up, not Reformed, but brought up in a fine Christian home and attended a fine Christian church, but I think that my views of God were relatively trite, I think, and it wasn't until I began to read Reformed thought, for example, reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God had a huge impact on me. And he really exploded a lot of the categories um, that I had for thinking about God. He blew up the box, I guess I'm, I might say, that I had placed God in. And so he, you know, he presented a much bigger God, a sovereign and almighty God. And, and so the natural outgrowth of that was to aspire to have a worship that was more reverent and God-focused than what I was accustomed to in the churches that I grew up in.
3: Terry, you went to pastor uh, Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah in the mid-80s. You were a, a young pastor at that time. So this isn't just a theory for you. This is the world you live in. Uh, you're a pastor. You care about this. You practice this. And, and I wonder, how would you describe the work of reforming a church's worship as a pastor? What did that require? How hard was that? How thick did your skin have to be? if any of that makes sense.
2: Well, my approach was to move slowly. You know, on the one hand, what I inherited was a traditional Presbyterian worship service in the sense of featuring the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the doxology, the Gloria Patri, which was pretty basic to mainline Protestantism in post-World War II America until about the middle 1980s. So when I came to independent in 1987, that's the kind of service that I inherited. However, the content of each of the basic elements was weak. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of reforming that had to go on. For example, they were singing, but they weren't singing any psalms. They were reading, but they weren't reading Lectio Continua or consecutively or s- systematically through the Bible. They were preaching, but they weren't preaching expository, verse by verse, book by book sermons. Uh, the prayers were insipid and had not been well thought out or thought through. And there wasn't a full diet of biblical prayer present in the service, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper was administered on a quarterly basis, which again was fairly typical and I thought that was too infrequent. So in each of those cases, changes were made, but I tried to make them as subtly as I could. And I can give you an example that we were using the old Burgundy hymn book that uh, was fairly typical of Presbyterianism throughout the United States back in 1987. And it actually had a fine selection of psalms though they weren't identified as psalms, but there were about 50 or 60 of them. But I immediately started using those and identifying them as psalms when I first got there, uh, so that I started to get the congregation accustomed to the idea of singing psalms. And within a month or so, I started an exposition of Mark, and I just let them know. I'd be preaching straight through Mark's gospel. Well, that was different for them, and there was some resistance. To that. But it was a subtle enough change. I wasn't making dramatic changes. The, the You know, the public face of the church was not being altered. I was pretty much respecting the culture of the church but making these changes subtly and slowly and, you know, in a ways that weren't likely to provoke too much opposition.
4: Terry, you titled your book Worshiping with Calvin. Maybe you could expand on you know, why you chose that title and what Calvin's influence is then on historical worship.
2: Well, I chose the title because I was hoping to spark interest in the young, restless and reformed. And uh, they like that word Calvin. And and so I I, I, I I had to work that into the title uh, so that people who are becoming reformed in their theology would begin to see that there is a connection between Mm. the theology and the worship. Uh, So, Say a little bit more about that. I I think that typically people today think that worship is a matter of style, of personal preference, and there's not a recognition as widely as I would hope, that there's a connection between our theology and our worship, that our worship actually is theologically driven. So if you walk into a Roman Catholic cathedral and you look forward and you see an altar in the middle, a large altar right down the center aisle at the back of the church, and then you walk into a Protestant church and you look down the aisle and you see a pulpit, um, there's a, you know, that's not the, the, because of they had different interior decorators who had different tastes. That's theologically driven. Mm-hmm. And it represents a different set of priorities and a different it's a different theology. And so Calvin's 1542 form of church prayers and Genevan Psalter, the form of church prayers was contained within the Genevan Psalter. That became the normative liturgy for reformed Protestantism. And so I thought it would be valuable to go back and look at why were these reforms undertaken? And the particular weakness that I thought what was available in written form for others to study, at the time that I published Worshiping with Calvin, was I didn't think the theological connection was strong enough in what was available. Uh, So I've been hugely influenced by Hughes Oliphant Old, and really I think that Hughes Old knew more about liturgics than anyone else who was alive, and maybe more than everyone else who was alive, (laughs) until... You know, he died a couple of years ago. But I didn't think the theological connection was strong enough. So what I tried to do was I tried to go to the Reformation solas mm-hmm. um, as section. a good summary of the Reformation, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, God's glory alone, and show that uh, the worship of the Reformation, the Reformed Protestantism in particular, arises directly out of those five principles and drives the kind of worship that we have, and to try to show that there's a lot more to what we do in worship than personal preference or or style. Mm -hmm.
4: I love how specifically you you show, you say, Sola Scriptura reforms the way that we look at liturgy, or Christ alone reforms the way we do the Lord's Supper. And Faith alone reforms our reading and our preaching. Grace alone reforms our prayer. And glory to God alone gives us a confidence in the ordinary means of grace. I just thought you did such a good job of breaking that down and showing the connection between Reformed theology and Reformed worship that has been divorced in a lot of contemporary churches today.
1: Well, thank you. Terry, how would you address the evangelical objection that formal liturgy leads to formalism? Obviously, a lot of good Christian people out there who instinctively recoil from the idea of a a formalized liturgical service that you might find in, say, a high Anglican or a Roman Catholic environment. How would you work on persuading people that, that formal liturgy, or at least some form of formal liturgy, is actually quite a good thing in a worship service?
2: Well, I think that having several fixed forms, by which I mean regular items in the order of service, helps to anchor and add substance to the service so that it's not entirely up to the gifts of the one that is leading. There are going to be you know, a range, a spectrum of giftedness amongst the minister's. And I don't think that everything should just be left to their own personal discretion and their own um, sense of things, so that it's good to anchor the service by using the creed, using the Lord's Prayer. We make liturgical use of the Ten Commandments on Sunday nights, using the Gloria pottery, the doxology. These fixed forms, I think, really do help to anchor the service and give it some continuity, give it some order. That, I think, is the great strength of historic Reformed Protestant worship, is that it maintains a healthy balance between freedom and form. I think all form is likely to lead to chaos and it's likely to digress into trivialities. And that's what we've seen in in the past few decades. Mm -hmm. I think all form suffocates the gifts. And I would very much agree with the Puritan critique of of the Book of Common Prayer. And they were consistently Insistent that free prayer, for example, be protected and that preaching be prominent. You know, right up to the last attempts to broaden the Church of England to include the nonconformists. So this went on until the late 1680s. They were insisting on the right of free prayer and the development of the gift of free prayer. So I, I would be, I would not be in favor of of a, a, a uniform imposed liturgy from which one may not deviate. I think that there's a gift of prayer that it's another form of pulpit speech that's meant to be moving and powerful. And prayers are meant to be uttered with urgency and and fervency and relevance and in light of current events, as well as being a full diet. You know, all of the prayer genres ought to be present in a service. So I think that's really, um, I think we are the Via Medea with, you know, apologies to Elizabeth I., Um, I think that we are the proper balance between the out-of-control, free services of some traditions and then the rigid formality of the high liturgical churches. We have the balance of freedom and form.
3: I think that's a great insight, and I think that's one of the reasons why that was one of the things that drove me to Presbyterianism. I had come to embrace the doctrines of grace years before I became a Presbyterian, but what drove me to Presbyterianism was two things. I became convinced that Presbyterianism was a biblical form of government. But then the worship was a huge part of that. And part of it was exactly what you explained, was that it guarded against the excesses of kind of a, a charismatic type of a free-for-all. And it doesn't even have to be charismatic. I mean, a lot of just conservative, you know, Baptist churches, a service ends up being just whatever the, those in, in leadership want it to be. But, but it guards against that. And it guards against the type of wooden formalism that we see in Anglicanism or Roman Catholicism. But what I, I think really disappointed me Terry, you and I are both ordained in the PCA, and you've been in the PCA for a long time. When I came in just five years ago, I was very surprised. I hope nobody minds here, but I'm going to get a little bit controversial. We'll get a little bit of hate mail on this, but that's okay. Terry's got to be used to a lot of hate mail, I would imagine. But <laughs> I, I, I was very surprised, Terry, five years ago and each year since at General Assembly for the PCA at how the worship services seemed to be much more like just kind of broad evangelical services than distinctively reformed in any way. That's why you should have joined the OPC, man. <laughs> you should have joined the OPC. <laughs> but, yeah. But that surprised me. Maybe I, I get, I suppose I was naive, but I was expecting at our General assemblies worship services that were distinctively reformed, the kind of worship that I ran to, that I fled to. And I know that you have weighed in on this publicly, and have been criticized for doing so. But why do you think that is? Why do you think in the PCA, when we have a chance to worship together across presbyteries, that oftentimes our gathered worship services look much more like just kind of broadly evangelical services than anything that is distinctively Reformed?
2: Well, I share with you the uh, disappointment. I too came into the PCA out of a different ecclesiastical tradition, Mm -hmm. a, a revivalistic Yes type of background and came into Presbyterianism thinking that I was going to have a steady diet of reverent, God-centered, serious worship and was extremely disappointed to find that 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 was not necessarily uh, the vision that the denomination had. And I think that the people in leadership in the PCA have been of a more progressive point of view when it comes to how we go about doing worship and ministry and by, by the way I think those two are inseparable we do ministry primarily in our worship services mm. i mean that's when we have the congregation that's when we gather yeah, as a church amazing. that's when that's when the vast majority of our people are present i mean anything else that's that right. we do relatively exotic. I mean, it's something midweek small groups or something. I mean, maybe 20% of the people participate in that. I mean, we have the congregation on Sunday morning, and it distresses me that so little Bible is being read, and so little in the way of prayer, and there's not a comprehensive approach to prayer, It goes on in our public services. And then to think that this is described as being a matter of style Mm -hmm. or or just personal preference. I mean, it really does make a difference whether or not the Bible is substantial portions of the Bible are being read or whether substantial time is being given to prayer. And it really does matter what we sing and whether or not there's any content in it and whether or not it's biblical. It really does make a difference whether or not we're providing systematic expositions of scripture or just doing topical sermons that are meeting felt needs. Mm -hmm. These are not just style matters. It matters whether or not we're administering the Lord's Supper with frequency as the confession of faith says that we should. That's why I say these things are theologically driven. They're not just a matter of my personal preference.
4: Yeah, you even say in the book um, that the trivialness that we see in today's worship is what contributed to the moralistic therapeutic deism of our age and even the lack of church attendance.
2: Yeah, say take example of our congregation, you know, in about a, a 10 year period, we would read through 40 or so books of the Bible you know by reading a chapter in the morning a chapter in the evening 52 weeks a year we over time you know we were able to read just the reading now this is not the preaching this is the reading and then the preaching would come out of a different text than the one that we're reading so that we would have to actually two readings we would have uh, say an old testament reading and then a sermon out of a new testament book that we're that we're preaching through systematically um, that's a that's a lot of bible now where do we think the average evangelical christian is getting a steady diet of bible either read or preached i mean if we're counting on them privately reading or reading in family worship you know we're likely to be disappointed so we have whole generations who are growing up they don't know the bible because it's not being read it's not being preached and they don't know the psalter because the psalms are not being sung and they don't know how to address god because they're not hearing much in the way of prayer. If there's an appalling ignorance today, it has everything to do with what we're doing when the church actually gathers. That's, that's really the way I like to pose the question at times. When the church gathers, what exactly are we supposed to do? And does the Bible say anything about that? Does it actually give us any direction, instruction? When the church gathers, what are we supposed to do? And so I came up with this little mantra. That what we do is we read the Word, preach the Word, sing the Word, pray the Word, and we see the Word in the administration of the sacraments you know, Augustine having provided us with the definition of the sacraments as visible words. Yeah, we, so, so we see the word, it's all built around the word, Well, all that word content over time, 52 weeks a year, morning and evening, the impact should not be un- underestimated. And the absence of it, of course, I think is catastrophic. Nothing less than catastrophic for evangelical Christianity and its sustainability in the years that are ahead.
1: So what would you say, Terry, to somebody who said, yeah, but you know, all of life is worship, and I can download John Piper or Tim Keller or one of the great preachers that I can get their sermons online. Why should I go to church on Sunday? What What is special about actually physically being alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ on one day a week? Because everything is sacred after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I think that my immediate answer to that would probably not be all that sophisticated. Jesus promised to be present where two or more are gathered in his name. I need to be where Jesus has promised to be. And yes, Jesus can be everywhere and anywhere because he is omnipresent. But I need to be where he has promised to manifest his blessed presence. And that is when the church gathers. I think that that's clearly what's going on in Matthew 18. He's talking about the church constituted as the church, first in a matter of discipline and then with respect to prayer. That's where Jesus promises to be. And so that's where I need to be. There's a difference between being online, listening to a sermon, and being in the congregation with the Spirit of Christ present, Under the ministry of those gifted individuals, Ephesians 4.11 and following, those gifted gifted individuals that Christ has given to the church under whose ministry we are to be built up and grow and be edified. Again, that's irreplaceable. You can't get that anywhere else. And besides, we are not privately to administer the sacraments. Do you think... Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry.
4: Do you think that the popularity of the celebrity pastors and the parachurch big conferences, do you think that we have lost a understanding of the ecclesiological context of actual worship? Because I know a lot of times conferences can look like worship services, even though they don't have the sacraments. They aren't led by people who are shepherds over our souls. And yet the singing and the male presence and the the sermons. I think people often feel like they're getting church in para-church. Do you think that that's led to any confusion with maybe diminishing the worship service?
2: Yeah, I think that undoubtedly that's the case. I think that we live in a hyper-individualistic culture. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember back when I was in college, I went on a retreat and they entitled a certain segment of the retreat, um, quote, just me and God, end quote. (laughs) And I remember even as a college student then, I was was disturbed by it. I, I knew what they were after, and they were promoting quiet time, which I thought was important, and I still do. And I would trade time sitting on my porch in Savannah, Georgia, with my cup of hot tea, reading my Bible and praying. I wouldn't trade that for anything. But what I found, even, again, even, even back in college, this is in the late 1970s, was that I had friends who, if they hadn't gotten up early enough to have their quiet time, would stay home and do that rather than gather with the church. So that's a reflection, I think, of the kind of hyper-individualism that is characteristic of American civilization and which infects the church. So that the important thing is what's going on with me and God and of secondary or tertiary importance is the church as the church. And I think also that uh, the church has been so broadly defined so that that, you know, the phrase that we're two or three have gathered in my name. So if a couple of us get together at Starbucks, that's the church.
4: <laughs> yeah,
2: right. You know, and it's not the church. It's, the church is an actual institution. The church has, um, you know, I've tried to develop out of Matthew 18 the implications of Jesus saying, tell it to the church. I mean, what what all is uh, implied in tell it to the church when it comes to somebody who's caught in sin? I mean, it, it implies membership. It implies mm. um, requirements for entry into that, standards that have to be upheld. There's doctrinal standards. There's moral standards. Yes, there's a system of government. There's a system of discipline. I mean, tell it to the church. You just can't count the number of times Jesus talked about the church. You have to weigh them. And he says, you know, In Matthew 16, I will build my church, and then in Matthew 18, tell it to the church. Well, the church he's building is the church that you tell it to, and it's an institution. It's got bricks and mortars, you might say. A form of government, a form of discipline, doctrinal and moral requirements to get in, and uh, if you fail to live up to them, you're taken out. So that's more than me and my buddies getting together at Starbucks and reading a couple verses and having a little prayer time.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. If you don't like organized religion then you're going to have a problem with Jesus because he organized our religion.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And the church that he is building is visible and it's an institution. And, you know, there's an important truth that is expressed in the concept of the invisible church. I think the dominant view today, though, is the invisible at the expense of the visible. Whereas in the New Testament, virtually every single time the word church appears, it has to do with an actual congregation that's in some
3: location yeah exactly exactly this is a conversation that we could continue with because it is so vital to our health and i know i mean terry we're very much appreciative of the fact that you have repeatedly over the years weighed in to this issue of of helping our church to worship one of the things i learned as I was gradually quote, becoming reformed was that the so-called five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace is just scratching the surface that the real implications come out in how the church worships. And, and so we need to take it very seriously. And if you're a part of the, the young restless reformed crowd out there and haven't taken a serious look at how you and your, your church worships together, then you're missing so much about what the Reformation itself was about. And so, Terry, thank you for uh, for the work you've been doing on this. Uh, we're grateful for uh, the work you've produced. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today for this conversation. It's been helpful and uh, convicting, and we hope that uh, that folks will listen to it and, and be benefited by it. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, very honored, and thank you for having me.
3: Mm-hmm. To our listeners, We want to uh, give away some copies of Terry Johnson's book, Worshiping with Calvin. And so if you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win one of these free copies. It is worth reading. If you don't get a free copy, then go out and pay for a copy because it's worth reading. If you're a layperson, if you're a pastor, get this book and let's be serious about how we worship as Christians and as Reformed Christians. We're so glad that you joined us. We look forward to being with you next time on Mortification
0: of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... your typical atheist because nobody argues about those things. We all believe them to be true. They want
2: to take that as a given starting point. But the, the fact is you cannot prove that starting point by doing science. You have to take it down faith. So that's why I say actually all science starts with faith. And really all human knowledge starts with faith.
0: We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
3: Yes. And you got this guy up there on the guitar and, you know, you know, and I'm going, we're, we're Presbyterians. What in the world? <laughs> <laughs>